1: Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port. I am here every other week on Saturdays on the Picture List Podcast Network. It's so exciting to have you all here today to talk about one of my favorite players, historically speaking, and someone I just am really very excited to talk about. I know last episode. I had talked about wanting to do a Scott Rowland episode, and I'm going to coming up because he just made the Hall of Fame, and I think it's really important to talk about the legitimacy of his candidacy and talk about him as a player because I really like Scott Rowland. But it occurred to me that it's Black History Month, and I think that it's really important. One of the purposes of a podcast is just to try and elevate the stories of black players and try to tell their stories and emphasize their importance to the game of baseball. And so with that in mind, I'm going to push... The Scott Rowland episode back uh, a couple weeks, and I want to do an episode today talking about one of my favorite players to read about, one of my favorite players to talk about, and that's Satchel Page an incredibly important player in Black history for baseball. And I want to start by cautioning, obviously, that I am a white man from the Midwest. I'm going to try and do my best. Obviously, let me know if there's something that I've done that or say that I could do better with, or I can express better. But I, I thought this was a really important player to talk about, so I wanted to really do him justice and do to this podcast a lot of folks will argue over what is the most unbreakable record in baseball is it Barry Bonds home run record is it Joe DiMaggio's hit streak or Cal Ripley Jr.'s Iron Man record for my money though the most unbreakable record in Major League Baseball belongs to Satchel Paige on September 25th 1965 Satchel Paige pitched three scoreless innings to become the oldest player to ever play in a Major League Baseball game this was at the tender age of just 59 years old I honestly think that's untouchable. The closest we've come in recent years was, what, Jamie Moyer in 2012, Julio Franco in 2011, who both played uh, their last games at 49 years old, I believe. Page beat them by over 10 years. He was six years away from collecting Social Security when he pitched in that game. It's incredible. And to be honest, this is actually the least remarkable thing about Page and about his legacy and what he was able to accomplish in baseball. He can lay claim to being both one of the greatest black athletes of all time and make an argument for being the greatest pitcher to ever hold a baseball. Just an absolute incredible pitcher, incredible player. Talking about Paige, though, is going to be a little difficult, and a little different than how we usually do things on this podcast. Normally, I'd do a year-by-year dissection of a player's career to get a sense of their performance and how they performed with their career, and we'll do that, certainly. But we have to do a little more than that of... For one thing, since Page spent much of his career in the Negro Leagues and actually doing a lot of exhibition games and barnstorming throughout the United States and in actually countries ranging from Cuba to Mexico, we don't always have full statistics or the context of those statistics for a lot of the games in which Page pitched. And that's going to make doing that type of analysis a little more difficult. So we will talk a little more in the sense of myths and legends and stories than we normally do here but that's actually fun it's really exciting and the numbers really are just the tip of the iceberg with Satchel Page the truth is that if you really want to get a sense of Satchel Page and his legacy and what he means to baseball and why he's important you really have to listen to the stories told about Page that are told throughout baseball history by his peers by those covering the game and by Page himself. I know in the past I've talked about how the likes of Mickey Mantle or Hank Greenberg or Sandy Koufax form the myths and legends of modern America. And sometimes I'll admit that's a bit of hyperbole on my part. But in this case, really with Satchel Page, it might genuinely be true. Read anything that anyone's written or said about Satchel Page or peruse his memoirs, and you will find story after story that sound like something out of a folktale or a tall tale. And that's really what makes Satchel Page so special. There's an air of mystery and lore around him, supported less by statistics and more by uh, word of mouth from those who played with him, and perhaps actually more importantly, against him. Every story told paints this picture of a player who was as much an entertainer as he was a dominant pitcher. He seemed to exude confidence and swagger that we just don't see anymore. You could put a book together of his quotes, which could run the full range from philosophical to observational to funny, often all three at the same time, and this is before we even get into his impact as a black athlete whose playing career spanned across the border in eras created by integration. It really is genuinely impossible to tell a story of baseball without talking about and really focusing on Satchel Paige. Where do we start? I suppose the beginning is the best, but there's some debate about when Satchel Paige was actually born. So baseball reference in the Hall of Fame have his birth year listed as 1906, and that's the official year he was born in. But for most of his career, reporters and teammates would often question if he was actually lying about his age. Now, obviously, whether there was some ill intent there to discredit a black athlete in his prime at such a young age or not, the uncertainty of his age surrounded him his entire career and honestly probably worked to accentuate some of the tall tale-esque ways that people spoke about and wrote about Satchel Paige. Honestly, this was also probably likely fueled uh, by the idea that Page tended to encourage this. He often would speak sort of enigmatically about how old he was and would respond sort of whimsically about his age when pressed about it. So it seems like something he wanted to also keep a bit of an air of mystery regarding. Now, we do know he was born Leroy Robert Page in Mobile, Alabama, and according to Page himself in his memoirs, He acquired the name Satchel while working at the local train station as a young child, toting bags for people coming in from the trains. He apparently put together a way of using ropes and poles to carry more bags at once, sometimes three or four at a time. And the other kids started calling him Satchel because what they claimed was he looked like a tree of satchels now. And the nickname stuck into a place which you were probably surprised to know that his first name was Leroy. Paige had a rougher childhood growing up. It was not the greatest part of Town or in the country, this was in segregated America during the Jim Crow era. is not an easy place for a child to grow up, and some of that involved also getting into trouble with gangs and other children. He Page often described going through town and throwing rocks and bricks often at people and things and animals and and whatnot as a kid with in that sort of environment, with not as much to do and things like that. He also said he mostly did it because he was good at throwing things, and it's just a, a very unique environment to have grown up in and i don't want that to come across as a way of judging or painting a young black child in that environment it just was what he grew up in and according to his mother lula he was also obsessed with baseball from that time period uh, from a very young age as early as eight or nine or ten and these two things would actually come together on a collision course when satchel was sent to a reform school where a local reverend taught him how to pitch. Satchel would uh, at one point claim that he essentially traded five years of his life to learn how to pitch, and it worked out well for him because he turned out to be an incredible pitcher. Page would spend the next two years after getting out of reform school, uh, basically right around 18, playing for an assortment of semi-pro baseball teams in Mobile, and this is where we see the beginning of some of the many stories of Page's showmanship beginning to show up already in one Of his memoirs, Paige said that once he they were in a game where the bases had become loaded, and he actually would stand up and call his outfielders in to the infield grass, tell them to get out of the outfield and come sit in the infield grass, and then would strike out the side inning and win the game. And there have been many corroborations of both this specific instance and have him having done this multiple times throughout his entire career, and it really reinforces to a certain degree that idea that Page saw himself as much as a showman as he was a pitcher. And he took pitching incredibly seriously and was a student of the game and a master of it. He just also understood he was there to entertain and that allowed him to do some really cool but slightly crazy things that we would never see happen in baseball. Think about that. He gets the outfielders to come in and play in the infield. Basically say, I'm not going to give up a fly ball. And heck, I'm not even going to give up a ground ball. It could be a hit. Because if a ground ball got through the infield, hit hard enough for things like that which we see all the time, that it's a double, a triple, a home run, practically if they're fast enough. And that was basically like, you're not going to make contact with the ball. I don't really need you guys to, to spend your time out there. It, it the amount of swagger that it takes to do that is incredible. It is so gutsy, and obviously he was good enough to do it. It worked most of the time. And I'll be honest with you, if you want my honest to god truth, if you know me enough, you'll know I'm. I'm pro-bat flips. I'm pro-entertaining. And I feel like we are missing this from today's baseball, that we don't see enough people celebrating their accomplishments and achievements. We don't see enough of this sort of sense of understanding that you're also there to entertain that I think is missing from today's baseball. And as I say, I think the pro clutchers, that kind of police today's game would never let any of this sort of thing happen. But man, I am here for it. I would... Oh my gosh, if we saw Jacob deGrom look at his outfield and just come here, come sit down, and just turn and strike out the side, I'd die. I'd die. That would be the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and I'd love to see that happen more in today's game, that kind of thing. So in 1926, Page was signed by the Chattanooga White Sox of the Negro Southern League. Notice that, 20 years old, and by now he was already rumored to be throwing consistently in the triple digits, even if he didn't have his trademark control yet. We don't have game logs from that season but Page wasted no time making his mark. Supposedly, he struck out like nine hitters in his debut game. And by the middle of 1927, his contract was sold to the Birmingham Barons of the Negro National League, which is where he would spend most of his playing Is in that league. And he was pretty darn good right away. He threw 98 innings in half a season across 20 games, 10 of which were starts going 9-2 with 93 strikeouts. It wasn't uncommon for Page to pitch on short rest in relief in between starts. And if you look at, of those 10 starts that he made that year, five of them were complete games, and three of them were shutouts. In total on the season, he ended with a 2.39 ERA and a 1.08 whip on the season. And honestly, this was just the beginning of something special, though. Now, we're just getting underway here, but I think... Before we start really diving into the rest of Page's career here, I think we're going to take a quick break now that I've given you a little morsel of how he got started just to wet your whistle. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, back at it here. So, jumping off of his first season there in the Negro Southern League, in 1928, Page continues to dominate for the Barons. He pitches in 25 games that season. And makes 15 starts with a 2.32 ERA, a 1.05 WHIP, and 121 strikeouts in a one in 132 innings, while going 11 and four on the season. Birmingham finished fifth in the NNL that year with 46 wins. So it's worth noting that Page contributed at least 24% of his team's wins that year, which is absolutely outrageous. And I want to mention real quick one thing to keep in mind while talking about the season totals or when you're trying to put the context of Page's numbers. On a year-to-year basis, in context, it's worth noting that these these leagues, reference the Negro Southern League and the the uh, Negro National League, which is where the Birmingham Barons played, only played in roughly about hundred games in a season. So when they, you know you start going, oh, only one hundred thirty-two innings or one hundred twenty-one strikeouts, and that's it. Remember that they only played hundred games, right? So. He was making less starts, he was pitching fewer games. So actually those numbers are pretty darn good and pretty darn high for those seasons. And it's worth noting that, again, you would also think those are low. Baseball players at this time period would pitch in a lot of exhibitions and would have to go on tour and do things like that playing baseball. So they were pitching in a lot more innings where the statistics weren't recorded. No one really kept track of what happened in those games outside of word of mouth. And just keep that in mind when I, I give out these totals. If you start to think that they don't sound impressive, trust me, they really genuinely are. Now, as I understand as well, there really weren't playoffs, per se, at this point in uh, the season. There really weren't even, as far as I understand, necessarily an official championship. There's a single series that was played at the end of the year, but I don't even think it was called the World Series at this point. I couldn't really find any record that said that it was, but they did not make the the playoffs, so to say, that year anyways. And this continues in 1929. This brings even more success for Satchel. As a member of the Barons, he takes a big leap up in innings pitched by jumping to 185.2 innings pitched across 29 games, And of those 29 games, 18 of them were starts with a 3.68 ERA, a 1.24 whip, and 189 strikeouts. To give you an idea, 14 of his 18 starts were complete games. So again, before you start thinking too negatively of that innings pitch total, he made 14 complete games in that season. And also, by the way, managed to save two games somewhere in there. He did pitch a lot of innings when you consider, again, just a 100-inning season The Barons struggled that year. They won just 33 games and finished in 6th out of 8 teams. But again, that means that Page accounted for 33% of the Barons' wins as a starter that season. During this time, he recorded separate games of 17 and 18 total strikeouts. And it's hard. Again, unfortunately, we don't have complete information from this time period. But it's worth noting that Page was often essentially rented out to teams in other leagues throughout the year where you'd make a, a start in a big game they needed or help fill in for an injury. It kind of almost reminds you a little bit of international soccer where you can purchase the contract of a player and they can play for you for a little bit and then you send them back. It was very much like that. And teams would often rent out a player to try and make a little more extra money and use someone to go to the player, that sort of thing. And oftentimes, one of the big reasons you would do this is because everywhere Satchel went, drew a big crowd. He always drew big crowds. He was a big ticket star already in really American baseball as a whole. Now, in 1930, Page was signed to go play baseball in Cuba for Santa Clara during the Cuban Winter League. And this doesn't go as well as hoped. Supposedly, there were pretty strict rules for players over there. They weren't really allowed to drink. There were pretty strict gambling rules. And then you throw in the language and cultural barriers that kind of stood in the way there. All this kind of made Page miserable and it resulted in him returning back to America before the end of that season. Upon his return, he was lent for half a season to the Baltimore Black Sox of the American or League, who were fresh off winning the league the year before. He made four starts for the Black Sox, throwing three complete games over 27.1 innings pitched with 22 strikeouts and a 3.29 ERA. He had a 1.50 whip that season and a 3-1 record. He then returns back to the Barons and comes back to the NNL, and... Returning home to the South certainly agreed with him as he was dominant for Birmingham the rest of the year going 7-2 and with a 2.87 ERA across 12 games. This was eight starts I believe he made. Seven of those eight starts were complete games and two of them were shutouts. Just wild. He threw 75.1 innings pitched since coming home with 69 strikeouts and had an astonishing 0.81 whip. Just outrageous. This is the 10th lowest whip in a season ever by a pitcher and on record in American baseball. In 1931, the Depression hit the Negro Leagues pretty hard, and so many teams temporarily halted play, including the Barons. So, Page actually starts the season technically playing non professional baseball over in Pittsburgh and for a little bit for a town called Homestead, and eventually actually even comes over and pitches for uh, a new team in Cleveland called the Cleveland Cubs, which was at that point then back in the Negro National League. It was a little fluid as teams were trying to stay afloat during the Great Depression here. He pitched in five games for the, for the uh, Cleveland Cubs, and this included three starts with two complete games and a shutout. Overall, he had a 2.84 ERA for Cleveland across 25.1 innings pitched and had 18 strikeouts. That winter, he joined a Negro League All-Star team that would play in the California Winter League against professional white players and was a huge success, and Page drew huge crowds everywhere he went. The following year, Satchel Page had to return to Pittsburgh in, a, in that same non-official Negro League and followed a super team with other Negro League stars like Josh Gibson. More on him next week, actually. Uh, And Page was absolutely dominant that year. He pitched in 22 games while making 16 starts. Of those 16 starts, 12 of them were complete games while throwing three shutouts. If you want to think of this in a typical modern, like, 162-game season, where a pitcher makes around 32 starts in a season, this would be the equivalent of throwing 24 complete games in a season. To put that in perspective, Sandy Alcantara led the league last year with six complete games. Six of them. Page threw complete games at a pace four times greater than that. Some of them obviously might have been due to throwing in fewer games. He could afford to go for more complete games because he didn't have to spread out his energy across so many games. But it's still really impressive. In 1933, the Negro National League reformed and Page joined the Pittsburgh Crawfords and absolutely dominated. He only went 4-5 and five on the season. He had a 1.94 ERA across 78.2 innings pitched, with 77 strikeouts to go with an astonishing .826 whip. To give you an idea of just how good his control had gotten, he had only 16 walks on the season. That's it. That's outrageously good. He only gave up 17 earned runs that year, let alone walks. Pittsburgh was so good that year behind Page and Josh Gibson that they ended up with the best record in the league, and therefore winning the pennant. It's... And it's worth noting that this is the first league Page played in that had an All-Star game for the record. And of course, Page is voted to the team that year. Now, 1934 saw Satchel Page somehow get even better. He went 13-3 with a 1.54 ERA in 19 games, including 16 starts, crossed 145.2 innings pitched with 152 strikeouts. 15 of his 16 starts were complete games. That's right, all but one of his starts were complete games. outrageous league-leading 0.87 whip. But this is the second year in a row he had led league in whip, while also leading the league in strikeouts per nine, hits per nine, and strikeouts per walk. He was an all-star yet again, and you have to imagine if there was a Cy Young-style award in the Negro National League that year, Page would If he did, though, have a rival that year, it was a pitcher for the Philadelphia Stars named Slim Jones. To drop interest in the league and to make money, I'm sure, Page and Jones actually pitched an exhibition game against each other that many think was the greatest pitching duel in Negro League history. In fact, some consider it the greatest game in Negro League history. It was held in Yankee Stadium. It drew a crowd of nearly 30,000 people, which actually outsold both recent MLB games by the New York teams in the area. After four hours, this is how tight this game was. After four hours, the game was finally called due to darkness at a 1-1 tie, and both pitchers were still, both the starters were still in the game. Page had struck out 12 hitters, while Slim had struck out 9 and As I mentioned, publications were hailing it as the game of the year, if not one of the greatest games of all time. It was such a huge hit that uh, popular lyricist at the time, Andy Razoff, wrote a poem called To Judge Landis, urging the then Commissioner of Baseball to desegregate the major leagues because they were missing out on such incredible talents and such incredible baseball. It was uh, so popular, in fact, this game that they end up having a rematch later that year, which went just as well and was just as hard fought. There was hope that this would become the next great rivalry for a decade, but injuries derailed uh, Slim Jones' career, sadly, and it's hard not to dream on what could have been. Just watching those two pitchers go toe-to-toe for uh, the next decade or so. In fact, unfortunately, actually, to make things even sadder, Slim Jones would actually uh, die a few years after this from kidney failure. So, again, it's it's easy to dream about what could have been in that situation. In the fall of that year, Page would face another pitching great, Dizzy Dean, who actually I talked about last season here in comparison to Corey Kluber. They faced off in an exhibition game. Page struck up 13 hitters in that exhibition while getting the win. He would face Dean again in the California Winter League that year in LA, and in that game he went 13 innings and got the win once again. This is a rivalry that, and really genuinely, it's not a friendship, I don't know, but a partnership of mutual respect from these two pitchers that would follow them throughout their entire careers and would go on to be really one of the greatest pitching rivalries in baseball history. Now, after a contract dispute, Page would leave the NNL and go pitch again, uh, go pitch for Bismarck, where he supposedly dominated and helped them win the first annual National Baseball Congress Tournament. This is actually a pretty big tournament. I had never heard of this before, but I, I looked it up. It's a pretty big tournament and still held to this very day. It's featured even mo- in modern times. as featured players like Jeff McNeil, Tim Anderson, Aaron Judge, Hunter Pence, Mark DeShera, Tim Linsicum, Albert Pujols, Lance Berkman, and even Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Tony Gwynn, just to name a few of the alumni from the tourney. So it's a big deal, and this was the first year it was ever being held. In the tournament, to give you an idea of how dominant Paige was, he started things off with a bang, you, winning all four games he pitched in, also pitching relief in another game. He struck out 60 hitters across the tourney. That's a record that still stands to this very day in the tournament. So even if you look at the today's era of elevated strikeouts and all these sort of things, Page's record still stands. It's, It's just absolutely incredible. Now, as I mentioned, one hard part of evaluating Page's legacy is because of how much of this production happened in exhibition games that were popular at the time. Again, you talk about those two games I just mentioned uh, against Desi Dean. I just talked about the two games against, against Slim Jones. Both of those don't are, are really put towards his career stats in a lot of cases. And so it's worth noting that some of these great starts we don't have record of. We don't have factored in when we talk about his career numbers here. And it's why you're really not going to hear me talk about him. You know, you're really not going to hear me bring up how many career starts he made or how many of these things. Not because they weren't uh, impressive. Not because they weren't notable. Because I don't think it gives proper context to just how incredible Satchel Page really was. In fact, to further give examples, they, Paige appeared in a an exhibition game later that year against, basically where he took a team of local sort of semi-pro players and took on a team of rising young white players in Major League Baseball. And this included, let's say, young Joe DiMaggio. And they won. He dominated. He was incredible in that game. He ended up striking out 12 hitters, and he pitched 10 innings. While well, he didn't take the loss, it was a 2-1 loss. Page was fantastic. It really helped solidify his idea that not only was Page excellent, but that they were on a level that was legitimate, and even with their peers over in Major League Baseball. That year, Page actually returns to Pittsburgh, and had a solid if unspectacular season for him, throwing 71.2 innings across 11 games and making 10 starts. He threw seven complete games with an 8-2 record while striking out 72 hitters and putting up a 3.64 ERA, the 1.33 whip. At the end of the year, Pittsburgh assembled a dream team of Negro League players and entered the very popular Denver Post Tournament, which at the time was a big deal, and they dominated it. They swooped all seven games they played in the tourney, and Page was a big part of that. They then went on a barnstorming tour, playing against a series of teams led by Roger Hornsby at the time which greatly helped demonstrate that the Negro League players, as I mentioned, were definitely equal to their respective counterparts. Now, 1937 brings a rough twist in Page's story. That spring, Page was approached by the dean of the University of Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic, who hired Page to help recruit other Negro League players to go play for the Dominican team Los Dragones. This team, unfortunately, turns out to be owned by Rafael Trujillo, who actually was the dictator of the Dominican Republic at the time. Not ideal. Page did what he was paid to do, and while over there he pitched very well, throwing 20 innings with 18 strikeouts at 3.15 ERA, Page's accounts of the situation describe it, a hostage situation almost, that they were living with constant fear, they were always accompanied by armed guards, and often worried and wondered that if they didn't play well. Was this going to be the end for them? Easily not a great situation at all. Now, this also has some other ramifications because when they returned, the Negro League actually banned them for going over there and playing in the Dominican. And this forced the players to revive the sort of a barnstorming campaign team that they put together called the Satchel Paige All-Stars. And they go around basically hosting their own independent barnstorming campaign across the country. In addition to this, Page then also goes down and plays in Mexico and he plays in the Mexican League. And this causes even further disputes with the Pittsburgh owners who basically laid claim to his contract, claiming he would never pitch in the Negro Leagues again. This really was a step too far. Pitching down in the Mexican League, in actually in Venezuela at the time, Page began experiencing shoulder pain that eventually got so bad that he could barely lift his arm. Some honestly thought he would never pitch again. After, this causes him to miss multiple years. And after a few years out of the league because of the shoulder injury, no one would sign him. And finally, though, the Kansas City Monarchs signed him in 1940 to give him a shot to see if he can't get right. It was essentially a minor league deal. He actually played for their, what was the equivalent of their minor league team. And honestly, it looked for a long time like he could still barely pitch. He was trying everything. Page talks about throwing sidearm. He tried to throw an underhand at one point. Like anything to try and get a pitch over the plate, he claimed. And then suddenly righted himself. It, it all worked. He suddenly started gaining strength again and his velo started to return and one day I'll click back into place and next thing he was throwing near triple digits again and was really looking like the old satchel page and looking back on what historians believe probably most likely happened is he suffered from a torn rotator cuff and we did not realize it and essentially what ends up happening is While he was away, while no one was signing him to play baseball, it essentially healed but wasn't strong. And so it took uh, half that season to build the strength back up in that pitching arm and get back to form. And most will say that consistently his pitches didn't have the same kick as they did before, but now suddenly they had more deception and had the same sort of control. The fascinating thing was that Page liked to claim that he essentially always only threw a fastball and that he basically just had different versions of his fastball that did different things. The best part of this, though, is he had names for all of them. He would call them everything from Bat Dodger to B-Ball, which he claimed was just always where he needed it to be. He called one of his pitches Thoughtful Stuff and Long Tom. These are just incredible. Midnight Creeper was the name of one. The Wobbly Ball, Whimsy, Whipsy Dipsy Doo. but his favorite. They started throwing around now was a pitch called the Hesitation Pitch, where he would actually pause in the middle of his delivery, and he had a big delivery, like his foot. He would describe, he'd kick his foot so high that it would block out the sun, and he would do this where he'd stop in the middle of it and then continue in. And we've actually seen something similar these days. Watch Johnny Quaido pitch. He does it all the time. It's fantastic. But I just, oh, naming all of your pitches is just one of my favorite things in the whole wide world about Satchel Paige. I love it so much. Again, I need to see what the thoughtful stuff pitch was. It just feels like a philosopher thinking about pitching. I just, oh, it's so great. I love it so much. But, so Page makes his comeback. The Monarchs actually rent him out to make the opening day start for the New York Black Yankees, where he pitches a complete game for them and then comes back and takes over as the Monarchs ace from there for the rest of the season. And so he was back, and he was just as good as ever. In 1941, that season, he went 5-0 and for the Monarchs, throwing 46 innings pitched with a 2.35 ERA across nine starts. He didn't quite have the old stamina he has. He threw just two complete games while striking out 47 hitters. But again, that's not surprising considering what he was coming back from. 1942 was just as good. He made 11 starts with five complete games, throwing 72.1 innings pitched with 56 strikeouts. He had a 2.12 ERA with a 1.01 whip, which again, considering it was 35, was actually pretty darn good. This is also the first season where Satchel would enact one of his most legendary moments in the first ever 1942 Negro League World Series. As Page told it in his memoirs. After pitching Kansas City to a win in Game 1, he came on to closeout Game 2, and he ends up loading the bases with a one-run one run lead to face Josh Gibson, who is m- absolutely probably the greatest Negro League hitter of all time, but his might honestly be the greatest slugger slash hitter of anywhere in baseball. It's just an incredible, absurdly good hitter, and the way Page tells it, he loaded the bases on purpose. But who knows? And then he tells Gibson that he was going to throw him three fastballs at the knees, and he got him looking at all three of them to win the game. There's been some disputing this legend, but actually two of his teammates, Buck O'Neill and Buck Leonard, every told the story in the same way in their memoirs as well. So there may be some credence to it. My guess is there's somewhere between the myth and our skepticism. That it's probably something similar to this, but not quite... uh, (laughs) You know, that big of a moment. I doubt he purposefully walked the bases loaded to do it. But then on two days rest from here, Page would actually start game three. And predictably, as you would imagine, a pitch in the two games before it, he does not pitch particularly well lasts just two innings in the game. Yet, despite that, he comes on the pitch in relief in game fours, shutting down the Black Yankees for five innings with six strikeouts to secure the series win while pitching in every single game of the series. Uh And one thing I find interesting is he, if you remember, Started opening day for the Black Yankees. I wonder if that's ever, a doubt has ever happened where a pitcher started the opening day for one team, then moved to a different team, then went to face the original team in, in the World Series, and then beats them. It's just wild. I can't imagine that's actually ever happened to someone before. Now, in 1943, he was great again for the Monarchs, throwing 118.2 innings, pitched across 28 games, 24 of those being starts, with three complete games, a 3.03 ERA, 95 strikeouts, and a 1.16 whip. He was the starting pitcher in the All-Star game that year, which was played in Comiskey Park in front of a record 51,723 fans. That's an astronomically high number. That's a football stadium number for that number of fans. That's incredible. 1944 may have been one of his best seasons since joining the Monarchs. He threw 98.1 innings across 16 starts with six complete games while putting up a 1.01 ERA with 105 strikeouts. Now, if the, the year 1944 seems to mean something to you, it should. Obviously, this is the heart of America getting into the World War II, and this is a huge effect on baseball. As players are being drafted left and right, and while Page was mostly too old to be drafted at this point, he did actually that year gained notoriety for insisting that the receipts from the all-star game that year were added to the war relief fund while he couldn't go serve he at least contributed that way and really this will continue for the next few years where the war really has an effect on the team's performance 1944 1945 in general was an off year for page with just a 3.55 era over 35 innings pitched across seven starts the season was only 75 games long that year again due to all the players fighting off in the war In 1946, we see both age and circumstance start to catch up to him at age 39. As he throws just 35 innings, but they're really a great 35 innings. He strikes out 32 hitters and goes 4-0 in 7 starts with a 1.29 ERA and a 0.83 whip. That year was also a return to form for Kansas City as towards the back end of the season. Many other players returned from the war at that point and they dominate their way to another pennant. In the World Series that year against the Newark Eagles, Page came on in relief in Game 1 of the World Series and even earned the win with 8 strikeouts over 4 innings. He comes on again in Game 2 in relief, but got roughed up this time, taking the loss. Unfortunately, he has the same result in Game 4, and the Monarchs end up losing the series in 7 games. In the offseason, he embarks on another legendary barnstorming tour, where actually Bob Feller was heading up this one. He assembles a Negro League All-Star team to take on Feller's squad. They go all across the country playing, and... Feller sings Page's praises. This is Bob Feller, again, one of the greatest fireballers of all time. And he's talking about how great Satchel Page is here. 1948 brings around a huge change for Satchel Page as he is actually signed to his first major league contract by the Cleveland Indians at the age of 41 on July 7th to pitch the final three months of the season. This makes him the first black pitcher in the American League. And when he was the seventh black player overall to play in the major leagues, At the time, he was also the oldest man ever to debut in either Major League Baseball league. When asked about his age, he famously replied, if someone asked you how old you were and you didn't know your age, how old would you think you were? He appeared in 21 games that season, including seven starts and went 6-1 with a 2.48 ERA and a 1.14 whip with 43 strikeouts across 72.2 innings pitched. It's worth noting that even at this age, Page was still a huge draw as crowds as large as 70,000 plus were still coming to see his starts at one point ever willing to rise up to a big crowd, at one point, Page still proved he had it by throwing back-to-back three-hit shutouts. That year, the Indians went all the way to the World Series, and Page came on in relief in Game 5, and the team went on to win the World Series. Sadly, this is the last time the Indians would win the whole kit and caboodle, but that's a story for another day, and my own personal sort of trauma and sadness all there in one place. There was a slight controversy that year as the league considered giving Page the Rookie of the Year award, since this was his first year in the majors, and Page was actually pretty insulted by it and told Major League Baseball that if they awarded it to him, he'd likely reject it. And it's caused a little bit of a kerfuffle, but eventually they do not give him the award and everyone is happy. 1949 saw Page throw 83 innings, almost entirely in relief, appearing in 31 games, but starting just five. He was solid with a 3.04 ERA and a 1.24 whip, doing a of 54 strikeouts and a 4-7 record the Indians miss the playoffs, and with the team being sold in the offseason, Page is given his release. Now, Page would spend another season barnstorming across America before returning to Major League Baseball to pitch for the St. Louis Browns. In the 1951 season, he throws 62 innings across 23 appearances, just only three starts, and largely struggled to the tune of a 4.79 ERA with 48 strikeouts. This doesn't continue, as he finds a lot more success in 1952 at the age of 45. He threw 138 innings pitched across 46 appearances, including six starts and three complete games. He struck out 91 hitters to the 1.25 whip that season and was named his first MLB All-Star game and even actually received MVP votes that year. He was also the first Black pitcher to ever make the american league all-star game that year in 1953 page struggled again which given again he was 46 wasn't really all that surprising but despite making the all-star game that year he was released at the end of the season and he returned to his barnstorming ways traveling the country to play baseball and it honestly seemed like page was done in the major leagues but not so fast that was the case until the Kansas City Athletics signed 58 year old Satchel Page over a decade later to pitch in one game on September 25th against the Red Sox. To Page's credit, he knew this was a gimmick. He knew what was going on, but he was an entertainer. That's who he was at heart. And he was going to do the best he could and do his darndest. And if he's going to go out there, he might as well dominate. And he throws three scoreless innings. He receives a standard ovation as he comes off the field to the crowd all holding lighters and singing the classic song, The Old Grey Mayor. It was a genuinely fitting and respectful tribute. Page would spend his years post-baseball doing a little bit of everything, including acting and trying to get into politics. And in 1971, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. At first, the Hall of Fame, in an act of insanity, attempted to claim Page would be the first member of the Negro wing of the Hall of Fame, as if there should be almost segregation in the Hall of Fame. That was immediately shot down uh, by many protesting voices and was done away with. And Page was given a place amongst all of the Hall inductees. And then finally, in 1982, Page would die of a heart attack during a power outage at the age of 76. And to give you an idea of just how impressive this man's longevity was in the game of baseball, this was less than 20 years after his final pitch in the majors. At the age of 76 it's just incredible it just blows my mind every time I think about it just to be able to be that good for that long I'm 37 and I'll tell you I play tennis I play softball and I feel like I'm gonna die some days after it I can't imagine being 58 the 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 level of how incredible athlete you have to be that good at that age is just outrageous to me it blows my mind and that's Satchel Page. I think we covered it all. Let's actually take a quick break here real quick. Take our last break and then we'll come back and we're going to actually rank Satchel Page here on our big old list. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody. Let's rank Paige. But before we do, let's actually take a look at the list itself. To give you the top 10 again, number one is Mickey Mantle. Number two is Greg Maddox. Number three is Mike Trout. Number four is Ichiro Suzuki. Number five is George Brett. Number six is Adrian Beltre. Number seven is Clayton Kershaw. Number eight is Edgar Martinez. Number nine is Sandy Koufax. And number 10 is Tony Gwen. Number 15 is Addie Joss. Number 20 is Robin Yount. Number 25 is Paul Molitor. Number 30 is Roberto Alomar. Number 35 is Kyle Hendricks. Number 40 is Whitey Ford. Number 45 is Jason Veritek. Number 50 is Robin Ventura. Number 55 is Mark Pryor. And rounding up the list at number 56 is James Paxton. The list, the link to the list will be in the notes. So if you want to see the full list, whether it's Kenny Lofton at number 14, Fred McGriff at 24, Dizzy Dean, as I mentioned, at 32, or Ryan Braun at 39, check out the list, see where, what players we've uh, covered so far and where they've all come out in the rankings as we have talked about them. I think this one's a little different in that, this is really more of a debate about is Satchel Page right now based on our list, which has Mickey Mantle at number one and Greg Maddox at number two. It's a question really of is Satchel Page number one or number two on the list? Because I think we can all agree, you know, that he goes above Greg Maddox. But let's think about this a little bit. As I mentioned, it's good to not get too focused on pages numbers. He was very good. He put up some impressive numbers, but I think. It doesn't tell the whole story, especially considering how much he pitched in exhibition games and how much he did these things outside of the records of baseball, you know, that we didn't keep track of. I just don't think it, I don't think we gain anything by looking too hard at those numbers in terms of making this determination. Now, I think, and I think some will try and make the, what I feel like is probably racist claim that he played against inferior competition, but... But actually, most baseball scholars believe that the Negro Leagues were on par with the Major League Baseball players of that time period. I don't discount any of his performance. Again, I mentioned how I think Josh Gibson has a good claim to being the greatest hitter of all time in any league against any of his peers. And he was facing him, and they were basically considered to be equals uh, in terms of the leagues in comparison to each other. I also think when you really look at the words of his peers speak for themselves here, Dizzy Dean said, Satchel's a better pitcher than I ever hoped to be. That's a Hall of Famer. That's Dizzy Dean. It started out like, a, it starts out like a baseball when it gets to the plate. It looks like a marble. Hack Wilson, another well-known, reputable baseball player, said of his fa- of Satchel Paige's fastball. Ted Williams, this is Ted Williams, who, if Josh Gibson isn't the greatest hitter of all time, it's probably Ted Williams. Ted Williams said, "Satch was the greatest pitcher in baseball. And Ted Williams respected Satchel Paige so much that in uh, in Ted Williams' Hall of Fame speech, because Williams got into the Hall of Fame before Satchel Paige, he actually took a moment out of his Hall of Fame speech to call for Satchel Paige to get inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's how much Ted Williams respected Satchel Paige. It just, what's a, is there a higher endorsement than that? Joe DiMaggio, guy famous for the longest streak in baseball for hitting in consecutive games, claims the best and fastest pitcher I've ever faced. That's Joe DiMaggio. Bill Veek said that Page was the best right-hander baseball has ever known. Lou Boudreau said in his prime, he must have ranked with the Walter Johnsons, Christy Mathewson's, and Bob Feller's amongst the greatest pitchers of all time. Bob Feller said Page was the best pitcher I ever saw. These are endorsements from legends, from some of the greatest players of all time. And they're telling me that Satchel Page is the best pitcher they've ever seen. To me, that says a lot and says a lot about how he was viewed in his time period and the impact that he had. I also factor in that he was really the ultimate showman. Beyond the things I've already mentioned, he would often do things like guarantee a certain number of strikeouts in a row before a game, and he'd usually hit it most of the time. It sort of reminds me of... You hear stories if you follow basketball and basketball history where Larry Bird would often, you know, essentially get bored in the middle of a game and play left-handed for half or... You know, shoot free throws with his eyes closed was another famous one. And really he'd do it just to drive home that he was that much better than you. And also that he was a little bored. And I feel like sometimes Paige would do this too. He just had to really drive home to be like, this is how good I am. And that's an extra special level of confidence and swagger that I just love seeing. And like I said, I think baseball's missing right now. It certainly added to the mythological status that page has achieved it really is just something cool and i think page not only understood the entertainment aspect of being a baseball player but i think he really embraced it i think he enjoyed it i've never i just i don't know i just never really read about a player like him i mean i mean heck there was a legend that he warmed up by pitching over a bubblegum wrapper that's how good his control was like if you just spend 30 minutes i haven't even touched all of them because i didn't want to run out of time but there are there's story after story after story of just incredible things Satchel Page has done while pitching, and you know there's one of him throwing a baseball through from a pitcher's distance through a baseball-sized hole in a wall on like a second try. There is just numerous stories of how incredible Satchel Page was. Just read his quotes, read his memoirs. They're fascinating. Read the memoirs. They they are absolutely fascinating, and really give you a sense of Satchel Page the person. I like. I feel bad. I I picked Satchel Page because he was a bit of a Cleveland legend, you know, having been a part of that World Series team, which is the only World Series the Indians, now Guardians, have won. But also, like, I find the mythology and I find the lore fascinating. I find it all so, so, so very interesting. I also was worried, you know, I mean, as I mentioned, I want to do this because it is Black History Month, and I want to make sure that I was highlighting a black player, and a player that was important to... African American history in baseball. I also, I'm I'm a white guy from from Cleveland. I you know I was of course concerned I wouldn't do justice. That I was concerned that probably and it, I mean this is probably true regardless of how I did in this episode. But obviously, Satchel probably even deserves better than being memorialized by by the likes of me. But I just this was a player that I felt needs to be highlighted. I felt needs. It's not even just him himself, but you watch his journey and you get an idea of what it was like to play in the Negro Leagues at the time, and some of the the challenges that they faced in trying to make a living doing playing baseball, it just really, I feel like all of it kind of came together to sort of paint a, a picture of an important player in black history for baseball. And then to kind of continue along that thread, you kind of have to factor in really what his legacy is as a black player in America at that time. You know, he, as I mentioned, he was a player who grew up in the era of Jim Crow laws, played through segregation and even made it to the majors post-integration. That is a unique set of circumstances that I think it's hard to not take seriously the impact that obviously had to have on Paige and the impact that having this charismatic, charming, entertaining, and incredible baseball player playing during that time period, the impact that probably had on the country and how we, how we looked at black players and how we, maybe we're receptive or not receptive to integration when it ends up happening and really you know he was the first if you think about it, because he was the first black pitcher in the american leagues right so he was probably the first black pitcher maybe even i mean larry Doby was there as the first american league black player period but it might have been the first black pitcher that many east coast major league baseball fans would have seen play live and you imagine combining that with his many sort of barnstorming campaigns that I mentioned, with the Satchel Page All-Stars going across the country and playing, especially playing a lot of these games where it was, you know, sort of the Negro League All-Stars going up against some of the best of the best of Major League Baseball and therefore the white players. You have to wonder if this helped pave the way for integration. You have to wonder if this helped really prepare the country for integration and really help push you know, the league in that direction to, to to start considering integration and start considering black players as not just being worthy of playing in Major League Baseball, but being seen as their equals in many ways. Quote, uh, one veteran of the Negro Leagues that was unnamed put it in, in a quote that I saw, Jackie opened the door, but Satchel Page inserted the key. And I think that that's an important legacy and I don't want to diminish it in any way. And I also don't want to dismiss obviously what Jackie Robinson was able to do, or what Larry Dobie was able to do. I obviously do not want to diminish that in any, any way whatsoever, but I think it has to be factored into that conversation. I think it obviously has to mean something uh, a little extra because of that. Baseball wasn't the same anymore because of Satchel Paige, in a good way, in a great way, and I think that means more than his statistics. I think that means more than the fact that, you know, for most of his career, he played in leagues that didn't have playoffs, and so we don't get the same playoff legacies to talk about. Those leagues didn't have, like, MVP awards and things like that, so we don't talk about those. Same thing with uh, All-Star Games you didn't see playing a league that's an all-star game until 1934 right so like I think that there are things that if we were to sit down and just look at the statistics he'd end up getting ranked somewhere down by by Addy Josh and I think that's a disservice to Satchel Page I think it's a disservice to his impact on baseball to what he means to baseball to what he means to the mythology and lore of baseball how we how we think of baseball I think there's this time where one of the things that we tend to do in the modern era when we think about baseball you know the way we talk about it is we kind of act like the magic's gone, the magic's disappeared, right? And we did—that's our fault. It's not not the players' fault. We don't talk about the game that way, and we don't encourage the players to behave in the way that we used to, right? And I think that it has diminished some of the mythology of baseball and the way that we talk about it, the way we treat it. And that's not always a bad thing, but I do think that I don't know if like we could have a, a satchel page type player. In today's game, I think probably the closest we have is maybe Ricky Henderson, right? And I think that we could use that. I think I think it's a, I think it's a good thing for the game of baseball. And I think Satchel Paige had a huge impact on the game that way. So again, to go back to the original question, with all that in mind, is he ranked higher than Mickey Mantle? And obviously, you can make an argument one A and one B as opposed to one and two. I get that. I just, you know, and Mantle was another larger than life mythological character in baseball. But I think, you know, when you talk about that, Page was on a whole nother level while being just as dominant. And you add in that he was a groundbreaker and, you know, and helped bust down a lot of doors and break a lot of barriers. And the impact that he had on black baseball and pitching well into his 40s and how he affected the reception of back black players of the time period. I think you have to consider Satchel Page for the current number one on this list ahead of Mantle. Obviously, it might not make sense statistically when you look at it, up, but I think when you factor. The, also in the attitude of his own peers, including players in other leagues like Major League Baseball, who all considered him the best pitcher of his era, regardless of what league he was in. I, I really think, when combined with the mythological status in baseball lore, he's got to be the new number one on this list. I'd be interested to know how you feel about that, because again, I think so far on this podcast, I have been much more methodical about looking at things like war and looking at strikeout totals and looking at those things and really like trying to place those contextually in history. And... Like I said, I just don't think you can with Page, and I think even despite that, he still deserves to be number one, and I think that's where I'm going to put him. So right now, that makes Satchel Page the new number one on the list, right there ahead of Mickey Mantle, and so now it's kind of fun to do what. Of well, the last three podcasts we've done, we have uh, what. Gotten a new number four, the new number two, and the new number one on the list. So we've been shaking some things up here a little bit in the last couple weeks, and that's fun. That's fun to do on the list. That's kind of what the whole idea of it is, right? So that's it. We've ranked Satchel page and again, I hope I've done some justice to him. I I think that this is one of the most important black players to ever play baseball. I, I think I think he's incredibly important to telling the story of baseball in America. And telling the story of the Negro Leagues in in baseball in America and getting to properly appreciate those leagues and those players, I think he has had a huge impact culturally on baseball and on America. And I think it's just I hope I did him justice. I hope again as a as a white guy from the Midwest, I, I asked myself: Should I do this? Should I talk about this important player? Can I do it? Just can I do it right and. I hope I did did that well because this is both a player I think is really important and is one of my favorite players. I think he's a really cool historical figure in baseball and is one of the reasons why I like baseball so much. I hope I did, did, did well. Let me know if you have any feedback. I think next week what I'm going to try and do is I want to do Josh Gibson, one of the other quintessential incredibly important Negro League players and I, I think that would be a good episode to sort of pair with this. And look forward to that. Let me know, because if there are some things that you'd like me to do differently or, or ways you'd like me to talk differently about these sort of subjects, as a, non, as a non-person a of color's voice, I would like to try and do better if and help elevate players of color, historically speaking, and in today's game. So let me know if there's something I can do better or ways I can work things better or ways I can do things better. I, I will listen and try to do better. And other than that, uh, I will see you in two weeks to talk about Josh Gibson. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming here and listening to my podcast. Happy Black History Month, and I hope the rest of your February goes well. And I will see you in two weeks. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend.